Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. God is so good. And uh, what a joy it is to worship Him and to worship Him together. And uh, I would invite you, if you would, to grab your copy of God's Word. You can turn with me uh, to the Gospel of John. We're continuing to behold Jesus. And as we behold Jesus uh, crucified, and today we will behold Jesus crucified and buried. And uh, we have seen so much of who Jesus is concerning His mission. And what an opportunity we have to focus on Him yet again. If you are here today, and maybe you didn't bring your Bible with you, and maybe your cell phone's not working, you can actually grab a Bible out of the pew rack in front of you. You can turn to page 963. I believe that's the right page. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that one. And uh, that is our gift to you this morning. And so as we consider and think about it so helpfully with our time of singing, just focusing on the glory of Christ and the cross and what was accomplished, there's so much to learn and so much to glean. And then as we have looked and seen, we've seen God's plan, we've seen God's character, and we've seen the mission being fulfilled, and it's as though as we continue to behold Christ on the cross, it's like we're getting closer and closer and closer, and it's like the more you look, the more amazing the detail actually becomes. We enjoy things like this. We enjoy learning all, the, and it's like you scratch the surface, and it just gets a little better and a little deeper and a little more astounding in all of what is being accomplished. And then as we have an opportunity now to turn our attention to Jesus and the fact that as we come into the text here this morning in John chapter 19, we know we have already walked through Gethsemane and the betrayal and Peter's denial and Jesus' trial. In the crucifixion, He has been on the cross. He has died for our sin. The thieves next to Him are still on the cross, alive. He has spoken those precious words that we ended with last week in speaking. It is finished. And even as we read the text this morning, darkness still covers the land. The centurion would have already said, truly this was the Son of God. And so grab your Bibles and read with me, if you will, in John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. And this is what we read. It says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, capture our attention. Father, there are so many things vying for our attention right now in this moment. Father, we pray that by the goodness of your grace, that our eyes, our hearts, our minds would be fixed on the cross of Christ. Beholding Jesus. That we would feel the weight of eternity in this moment. And Father, that by your grace and for your glory, not only would we see and behold, but Father, that we would believe. Father, we ask for you, by your Spirit, to work in our midst in a way that you alone can. To bring hope and life and peace as we behold and as we believe in Jesus Christ, crucified for us. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Amen. So as we come to this passage, and it really as we dive right back in in verse 31, we know Jesus has already been on the cross. We know that he has just said it is finished. We know that he, even if you just back up one verse, it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so at that point, he would have said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so now all of a sudden, it's like the details of the day start to continue to unfold. And so that as we're beholding Jesus, we're seeing that there's so much in addition going on. That people have all sorts of different ideas and all sorts of different plans. It says since it was the day of preparation. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked that that Pilate might have their legs broken, that they might be taken away. So it's the Friday before the Sabbath. It's an obligatory day. It was a high day. So it's a a day that they would have to be, if you're going to be an observant Jew and you're going to follow the pattern, you would have to take this Sabbath and have to take it most seriously. And so it's like people are beholding the cross of Christ and looking at it with this mindset of we have a lot to do. We have a lot to do to go and remember that God rescues his people from death. There they are beholding Christ on the cross. And it's like you can feel the irony in the moment. We got to go get this done. We got to go pay attention to remembering that sacrifice. We got to go get involved in this in some way. We don't want these bodies remaining on the cross. Because if you know Deuteronomy chapter 21, you know that if you left a body up on a cross, it would defile the land, right? You were not supposed to leave it up there. It would curse the land, and nobody wanted to do that, especially on Passover. And it's like in the midst of all the busyness and all the attention to detail that they have, their busyness is amplifying their distraction. And I wonder if that's how we find ourselves beholding the cross of Christ today. We are all so profoundly busy in a thousand different ways for a thousand different reasons. And then we can talk about Easter and we can maybe get the decor out. Maybe we can get the baskets put together for the kids and everything else. But as we think about the grandeur of who we are focusing on, are we trapped in our own busyness of looking at the situation and saying, okay, we got to move on. we got to go do this. We've got a schedule to keep. We feel in the moment this settled unwillingness to see what is right in front of them. And so they ask Pilate, that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. They've got to go on and die already. 
Because if they would break their legs, then it would remove their ability to push themselves up in order to take a full breath. And that you, with broken legs hanging on a cross, you would suffocate in a matter of a few minutes. Pilate, you got to go get these soldiers to take their iron mallets and go and shatter the legs of these crucified criminals so that they will quickly die. And so the soldiers came, verse 32, and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. And it's like in watching this scene unfold in front of us, it's this calm, brutal precision that is unfolding before our eyes. Both of these criminals on either side of Jesus were still alive and now their legs are broken that they might quickly die. One of them would go on to meet his maker facing divine justice for spending the final hours of his life mocking the agent of all creation. It would endure the full horror of hell for his unbelief. And the other in the final moments of his life turned from a mocker to a repentant believer who heard the words of Jesus Today you will be with me in paradise. He would have closed his eyes in death, only to have known he had been ushered into life. So much going on in the moment. And it's like we're being led along the path here. Behold Jesus crucified, that you may believe in him. Because as they break the legs of one and they break the legs of the other, it's like they turn their attention to Jesus again all of a sudden. And in verse 33 it says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He was already gone. Now these Roman soldiers were experts in death. They would not have gotten this wrong. They would not have been mistaken. For them to have gotten this wrong would have meant their own death. They knew the difference between somebody who had passed out and somebody who had actually died. And they wouldn't risk their necks if they thought it might be one or the other. They look at him and they say, there's no need to break his legs. He's already gone. We know from other gospel accounts, like in Mark chapter 15, that Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. But we know that this is not simply because Jesus died quickly. This is because Jesus laid down his life for us. It's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 10. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. His life was not cut short. His life was complete. His life was not a regrettable end. It was a redemptive end. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, as a propitiation where he endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against the sin of all who would repent and believe, and then said, it is finished, and laid down his life. And it's like we're looking at this, and it's, it's capturing our attention to the degree. It's like when you're watching something, and all of a sudden it just grabs you, and you lean in a little bit. Let me look a little closer. 
Let me take another look here. There's a lot going on. And see, one of the soldiers, it's, it, as we read this, one of the soldiers notices all of this and says, he's, he pierces his side with a spear. And there comes out blood and water. That the soldier sought clarity, so he pierces his chest cavity. If Jesus had not been dead in that moment, they would have obviously known that. And then what, what proceeds to happen? That because he is dead, there's evidence. There's blood and water. There's buildup of fluid in his chest cavity because of the heart failure that has taken place. It's proof that he is dead. It actually is finished. He actually has laid down his life. And it all happened so fast. And it all happened with such precision. And it all happened with such certainty. And see, as we read this beyond the medical significance of the blood and the water, John brings this up later on in 1 John chapter 5. Of the testimony of the blood and the water. Of the blood and the water and the Spirit is how he says it in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 8. There's significance in this because his blood being shed for us is this declaration that atonement has been made. The sacrifice has happened. He has died for us. He has endured the punishment against our sin that we deserved that he would redeem us. Reconcile us to the God against whom we have all sinned would prove himself as our propitiation in that God is both just in the fact that sin is punished and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But it's not just the blood, is it? It's the blood and the water. A reminder that we are cleansed in his death, forgiven, from the, cleansed from the stain of sin in our lives. And I wonder that even as we say that, Right, We know what it is to have stubborn stains in clothes and that sort of thing. It's like you wash them and you bring them out and you, ho- you pull it out of the washer and you pull it out of the dryer and you're looking at it and you're like, nope, got to try it again. And so we've tried all manner of different things. For some of those things, it's just like, I'm just going to have to take it how it is. And it's stained and it's still sitting in your closet. Maybe I'll wear it when I can put a coat over it and cover it up. But see, that's how many of our lives are as well. Stains that we've tried to get rid of, stains that we've tried to wash clean, stains that we've, we've tried every which way and every method that we can come up with to try to make it right, and it just won't go away. And it haunts you to this very day. There is cleansing in Christ. He forgives us and washes us clean when you trust Him as Savior and Lord. None of us want to be filthy. None of us want to stand before the righteous and the holy God, knowing good and well that as His His holiness shines down upon us, we realize that even all of our good deeds that we offer before Him is nothing but filthy rags. And only when we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, received by faith, can we stand there with any sense of confidence and hope. This is what we're offered in Christ. This is the cleansing He gives us. What joy we have in Christ when you trust in Him. And know that as John says in 1 John chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His side was pierced with this spear. There flowed the blood and the water. 
And it's like we have all, all of a sudden in the middle of this whole account, we have this little personal interlude here. He's not just recounting these details that we would know all of the details. We're not just learning all these things to learn all these things so that we can go tell somebody else that we learned all these things. There's a point here. Look at what he says. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. It's like the Apostle John here in this interesting way that he always avoids mentioning his own name. Here he is identifying himself yet again in the same way. He who saw it has borne witness. I'm telling you, this really happened. So as we think about beholding Jesus, it's like in the middle of the text, he's sort of grabbing us and saying, hey, hey, this really happened. This is real. This is true. He said, I saw it. He who saw it is borne witness. And we like firsthand accounts. I mean, if you, were, if you were trying to get the highlights from the basketball game last night, you would want the highlights of somebody who actually saw the game, wouldn't you? Otherwise, you're going to be like, why are you telling me this? You weren't there. You didn't see anything. We want to know, like when we read books about historical events, we want to read the books by people who were actually there, who actually lived it, who have some sort of specific thing to say because they saw it with their own eyes. He's saying, I saw it. He says, his testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth. He's not making up details. He would face the same threats if he exaggerated things to just make things up. He knows the truth. And he's, it's as though he's looking at us and saying, look, this would stand up in court. And we're reminded here that as we behold the cross, as we behold Jesus crucified. What we need is not some glitzy sales pitch. We just need somebody to tell us the truth. We just need somebody to look us in the eye and tell us the truth without reservation. This is what we want, isn't it? This is what you want from your doctor. This is what you want from your dentist, probably. This is what you want from your teachers, or if somebody's selling you a car, you want them to tell you the truth. How much more when there's eternal consequences? And then as we're looking at this, it's as though we, we are in the danger, and it's as though by the Spirit of God at work through the Apostle John, he knows that there's this threat of just treating this like it's, it's too good to be true. Right? We've had those moments where it feels like it's too good to be true. When you're, when you're the, the groom and you're standing there at the, at the front of the church and you look back and those doors swing open and you, in that moment it's like it's too good to be true. And when your children or your grandchildren are first born and you first hold them, you know what that is like and you experience it, it's too good to be true. You just can't explain it. And it's like in those moments, you want somebody to walk up to you and pinch you and be like, hey, it's real. This is really happening. And it's as though, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John is sneaking up behind every one of us and pinching us and being like, hey, this really happened. It's real. It's amazing. Behold, 
Salvation is accomplished. He who is the bread of life has been broken for us. He who is the light of the world has endured our darkness. He who is the door has torn through the veil and given us access to the Father. He who is the shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. He who is the resurrection and the life has given his life for us and he will take it back up again. He who is the way, the truth, and the life has opened the only way of salvation through faith in him. That really happened. To what end? What does he say? That you also may believe. Notice what he did there. He's not saying, I want you to believe it, but I don't. He's saying, I want you to also believe it. He's saying, I'm standing right here and I witnessed every bit of this and I believe and I want you to believe as well. It's really true. And we may read this, you might think, okay, well, believe what? That's a good question. Part of it is to believe that our sin is really this bad. That our rebellion, we're image bearers of God. And our rebellion is so bad that it requires the death of the Son of God in our place for us to have forgiveness. We can't fix it ourselves. We can't undo our sin. We can't do undo our sin nature. We need Him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And He's the only one qualified to do it. Fully God, fully man. In the flesh, lived in perfect righteousness, was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin, went to the cross and endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin. Only God in the flesh could do that. And He did. Behold the truth that you would believe it. Behold Jesus crucified that you would believe in Him. That we're not watching this like idle spectators. Well, you just watch something for a little while and then you turn it off and go do whatever it is that you want to do. No, you trust him. This is personal redemption and reconciliation and cleansing. Behold him that you would believe in him. Now, the Apostle John mentions this again. You could probably just look across the fold in the Bible. In chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You need him. Trust in him. His death is sufficient. And the truth, as always, is corroborated by other witnesses. What other witnesses? Well, God himself. Because the next thing the Apostle John mentions is this, verse 36, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. These things, all these details that are, are played out, even down to the degree of not having his bones broken, every detail matters. The details of the crucifixion confirm the reasoning for our faith. He says, not one of his bones will be broken. What is he quoting from here? He's actually quoting from Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, which is mentioned again in Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, which is mentioned again later on in Psalm chapter 34, verse 20. What's he making reference to? He's making reference to the Passover lamb. That not one of the bones within the 
lamb itself that is slain as a sacrifice for forgiveness, as a rescue from death, not one of the bones would be broken. And then in the midst of Passover, there's hope in the face of death. And Jesus Christ is that hope. Jesus is our Passover lamb. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that very thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 actually states Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the spotless, sinless Son of God slain to rescue us from out under the shadow of death. He is the hope of life. He is our Redeemer and Rescuer. He is the Righteous One to save us, unrighteous as we are. And it's like we read this and it's like we zoom in a little closer and it just gets more and more amazing. It's like we're sitting there and it's like we're, we're pulling out the microscope and we're looking a little closer. And it's like all the detail that we, we thought we knew and we thought we understood, we get a little closer and we see just how deeply this runs, how amazing this actually is. All this design and all the beauty and all the wonder. Behold Jesus Christ crucified. There's so much to see. Behold Him that you would believe in Him. But it's not just that not one of His bones will be broken. Notice what He says in verse 37. Again, another scripture says, They will look on Him whom they have pierced. He's quoting from Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Within the context of where you are in Zechariah chapter 12, if you were to go read that, He's talking about the people of God looking upon God whom they have pierced. Even the wording in the Hebrew is indicative of putting to death. You think, well, how in the world could that be fulfilled? Right here. God's Son in the flesh, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It could only be Jesus who fulfilled this 500 years after God had it initially written. Behold him. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And that even when you look and you behold the broader context of Zechariah chapter 12 and you find yourself and you just continue reading on, you make it to Zechariah chapter 13 and you read Zechariah chapter 13 verse 1, it says, on that day, speaking of the day in which they look upon the one whom they have pierced, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We deserve a flood of punishment. And in Christ we are graciously given a fountain of His grace to cleanse us from our sin. Look at, behold Him. Believe in Him and the magnitude of His grace and goodness and love and kindness to forgive us of such an awful reality in our own lives. Or as one hymn writer so famously put it years ago, William Cowper, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Behold, Jesus crucified, that you would believe in Him. 
He's who you need. Who better to trust? Have you fulfilled any of this? Have I? Have any of us? Can we look at the details of our own lives and see anything remotely like this? We look at him and it's amazing. We behold him in all of the detail of what God has put together. I need him. Go to him and trust him. That you would not perish but have everlasting life through faith in him. That you would be cleansed of your sin. That you would know redemption and be received as a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is amazing, isn't it? So we behold Jesus crucified, but it's not just beholding him crucified that we need to see. We also need to see Jesus buried. Because the text goes on, it says in verse 38, After these things Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away the body. So Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, we know all these details from the other Gospels as well. He's a rich man. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He's a disciple secretly. So he's convinced Jesus is the Messiah, but he's afraid of the risk of loss for following Jesus. He would lose his position. He might lose part of his career. He might suffer some social capital loss as well. His family would look down upon him. But look in the moment. The truth has so captured his heart that all of a sudden now he realizes Jesus is worthy. Worthy of honor. We like to give honor. We find all sorts of ways as a society to give out trophies and plaques and certificates and everything else. Sometimes when we hand them out, we know good and well that we're handing something out. We're like, they don't really deserve this, but I'm going to give it to them anyway. Right? I know some of y'all were sitting in that elementary school classroom and you were watching all that and you'd be like, that kid doesn't deserve an honorable mention. But as we behold Jesus... Do we see him as worthy? Do we see him as worthy of honor and praise? That even for some who may be here, who have been just walking around in the shadows, maybe you believe all this stuff, but you just haven't wanted to, to face any risk in associating with him, and all of a sudden, the glory of the truth is calling you out of the shadows to come and walk and follow and honor him with every bit of your life that you have left. Here he is, he asks Pilate, He goes and he asks Pilate, I want to take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gives him permission. So he came and he took away the body. Secret devotion no more. Is he worth all the risk and all the fuss? But notice, Joseph's not alone. We're also told Nicodemus. Who had come to Jesus by night. You remember in John chapter 3 where he has the whole interesting conversation about being born again. Here's this same Nicodemus. Here he comes, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, aromatic spices to overcome the stench of death, aloes and agarwood and used in colognes even to this very day to try to overcome the smell. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. They would follow the customs of Closing the eyes of the one who had died. 
binding the mouth, washing the body and anointing him. Using specially prepared linens where they would wrap the face and then they would wrap the arms. They would wrap all the appendages and wrap the body. If you ever had any doubt or if you ever heard somebody say, oh, well, Jesus just passed out on the cross. You can't make sense out of that. They're handling his dead body. He's dead. He would have been cold to the touch. They would have been handling his body and he just would have been limp. The son of God dead, prepared for burial. Joseph and Nicodemus exposing themselves to ritual impurity for seven days according to the law, missing the Passover, well aware of the consequences of honoring Jesus here. And yet in actual fact, here they are the ones who are truly celebrating the real fulfillment of the Passover. And as though as we're reading this, as we look at it, we can say it feels like they're missing out. But then when you get a little closer and you lean in, you realize they're not missing out at all. They're the only ones who are really satisfied. Honoring Jesus in his burial. And see, for some who, who maybe are like Joseph of Arimathea, you're afraid, but you you. Trust to a degree. You you know the truth and you acknowledge the truth, but you're just afraid. And following Christ, you're not missing out. And following Christ, you'll finally be satisfied. Behold the truth and believe and honor him no matter the cost. We're told now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Wealthy residents of Jerusalem would buy up this land, have these little holes dug in the wall so they could bury. Here's a new tomb. Nobody's been in there before. It's like even in reading this, you can see God's hand in all of the details. It says, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So here it is. It's a place that nobody's ever been before. Nobody's name could be etched in the stone. Nobody's ever used it before. There'd be no mistaking where this was. Joseph of Arimathea knew it. Nicodemus knew it. We know from the other gospel accounts, so did Mary Magdalene. So did another Mary who were watching from a distance. There'd be no mistaking. And so because the day of preparation was at hand, since the tomb was right there, they laid Jesus there put him in the tomb Mark 15 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea rolled the stone Mary and Mary are off in the distance watching all this take place and Joseph and Nicodemus just thought they understood here they are having honored Jesus in his death not realizing that within just a few Days, the lamb who was slain would be the lamb who would rise. It's as though we are just set up here. Jesus was laid there, and now we wait. Is he really who he said he is? Did he really die on the cross for our sin? Is he really going to rise from the dead? Is he really that victorious? Do you believe? Do you trust him? Do you trust him that 
enough to follow him even now and honor him in whatever way you need to. Because maybe you're here today and in reading this text, you think, well, how am I supposed to respond to this? Well, the first way to respond is trust him. Believe. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned willfully and woefully against the righteous and holy God, and we deserve to be punished for it. But in Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you believe that He endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God that had your name on it. And that through faith in Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for you, you would have life because he who died is he who rose again. So that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me ask you, trust. If you've never trusted him today, do you have a better option? Can you conceivably come up with a better option? There's not one. What's holding you back today? And maybe you find yourself, and maybe you just, all of a sudden, you're convinced, but you're still hiding out. Come out of the shadows and come and honor him. Come walk in boldness. Come walk in humility. Come acknowledge he's worthy of all praise and glory and honor because the lamb who was slain for you is the lamb who rose from the dead. May our response to him today reflect the fact that we know him for who he is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. God, we pray that in this moment, you would bring an overwhelming sense of conviction of our own sin for every single one of us. That we would be reminded of what Christ endured for us. And Father, that we would be reminded of the wonder of your grace and the freedom that's found through faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, that in the midst of bringing forth that conviction, Father, we pray that you would shine your light in the hearts and lives of everyone here today. And Father, for the people or persons who are here today who have not ever trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. They would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross and risen from the dead, and would have life in his name. God, do a mighty work in our midst. And Father, for all of us in here who are not honoring you as we ought, who are afraid of what it might cost us, remind us of your great glory, remind us of what you've done for us, that we would live to honor Jesus because he's worthy. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.